you got a Bible, open to James chapter 5. We're actually kind of landing the plane on a series that we've been in for the last several months together, working our way through the book of James, taking a look at what James has to say to us about being a, a people who not only profess to believe certain doctrines, but who actually practice those doctrines and those beliefs. They not just profess faith, but actually possess it, and it begins to reorient it and shape their lives. And so what James has been addressing is where my heart has been for the last several months for our church is that God would raise up a church here at Sabine Creek Fellowship of people, uh, of disciples of Jesus whose lives have been so radically altered by God's grace and his love and affection for them that they would then begin, the output of that would be a, a body of believers who not only say, yes, we, have, we check the boxes on all these doctrinal truths, but they would actually begin to practice those truths in the way they interact with each other, the way they relate to God, the way they relate to each other as husbands and wives, the way they relate to each other as mothers and fathers and children, the way they relate to each other, to the poor and the needy in our community. Because James has been driving really hard at the practical expressions of our doctrinal convictions for five chapters now. And I think he comes at the very end of the book in verses 19 and 20 to address an issue that I think is crucial if our church is going to be a vital church in Royce City, Texas as the city grows around us and God brings new people in and connects new people into the life of our fellowship. It's absolutely vital that we drill down and understand what God's calling us to do in the, at, the, at the very conclusion of James's letter. We might want to just look at those last couple of verses in James' his letter and just kind of write them off, but I think God has something to say to us about what it means to be a vital church of Jesus that loves Jesus, worships Jesus, serves Jesus, and honors Jesus in our community. James has talked quite extensively, and some of us will go, man, this is, it's been incredible because James talked about us loving and serving those who are in need without partiality. So in other words, when we watch somebody come in the door and we go, well, man, they're not necessarily dressed like the rest of us, okay? Uh, they look a little bit different than we do. James says you don't pull away from those people. You push into those people, and you care for those who are in need, even if they have very large, massive, tangible, practical needs, financial needs, vocational needs, marital needs, whatever those needs are those, who are, those who are lowly and poor, you'd press into them and not pull away from them based upon their societal status. And most of us want to rally around that and say, yes, we've got to care for those who are in need. We've got to pour ourselves out to care for those physical needs that they possess. And I would say James absolutely calls us to that. But he comes to the end of his letter, or the end of his sermon, and James says, there's needs that exist in the lives of people who are part of our fellowship that you will never see on the outside. That you may never see physically with your eyes. There are needs that exist that, are go that transcend the physical condition or physical state that people are living in. And James says, there are needs that are under the surface that are needs of the soul. There are needs of the soul. And James says, inasmuch as we address the physical needs in the lives of people that God brings to us, we've also got to be aiming to address the spiritual needs and soul care for the lives of the folks that get attached to Sabine Creek Fellowship. So I want you to listen to what James has to say in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. We'll read these two verses together. James 5, 19 and 20. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a copy of the text to follow along. 
But James ends his letter or ends his sermon to this church that he wants to see be a vibrant expression of faith in Jesus Christ in its local context, which is what we want to see as well. He ends the letter with these words. He says, my brothers, in verse 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James says, yes, in chapter 3 or chapter 2, you've got to care for the physical needs of people without any kind of partiality and showing favoritism toward those who are more educated or wealthier or have a higher socioeconomic classification or status. But he comes to the end of the book to say, not only do you have to care for the physical needs of people, but you've got to get under the surface and address the needs of the heart and the soul and the spiritual condition of individuals who are part of your fellowship. Because he says some of them are going to wander. I think of the old hymn that our hearts, right, are prone to wander and they're prone to leave the God we love. You see it in Israel's history throughout the Old Testament that God saves them from bondage and slavery and captivity in Egypt. There they are under the cruel, oppressive, dictatorial uh, thumb of a Pharaoh who is causing them to labor day in and day out, day after day. And God comes in and he crushes Pharaoh and his armies and he brings Israel out of captivity through the sea into the land that he had promised to their forefathers. And yet they get on the other side and they begin to grumble. I wish you'd have left us over there in Egypt. At least we had food to fill our bellies. And so what happens? They wind up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years until they eventually make it into the land of promise. The next generation comes in. What happens to them? They hear the same stories about how, what God had done miraculously to deliver them from bondage and captivity. What do they do? They wander away from the God that had loved and redeemed and rescued them, their forefathers. So God raises up prophets over and over again to send to his people in the Old Testament because his people's hearts would wander away from God continually. Our hearts are so prone, prone to wander and prone to leave the God who has loved us so extravagantly and so sacrificially. And James says that not only happens in the Old Testament with Israel wandering in the desert and in the wilderness, but it absolutely happens in the church that there are folks who wander, he says, away from the truth. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by wandering from the truth? This is what he means, that there are some people who are part of local bodies, local churches, who might be on a membership role somewhere, but they have wandered away in a, in a failure to profess or practice the truth. It's either in their profession or their practicing of the truth. So this wandering can either be doctrinal or it can be moral. It can be in what we say, we believe, and what we, and then what we actually live and do, James says. It can be either, on either category. For instance, in, for, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's writing to Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus, and this is what he says to him in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He makes reference to these two individuals uh, who had come into the life of the church in Ephesus, and he says, I should have marked it. This is what he says to them in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verses 16 to 18. This is what he says. 2 Timothy 2.16, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. That's a pretty vivid image, isn't it? 
And then he goes on to say, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, these two individuals who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And so Paul says to Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus, he said, you're going to have people, in fact, you do have people who have come into your fellowship who do not hold to orthodox doctrine. And he said they have swerved, right? It's like they're driving down the highway, and all of a sudden they make a hard left turn or a hard right turn. They've swerved away from the truth. And Paul says you've got to guard against that, Timothy. You've got to watch out for that amongst the life of if you're the believers there in Ephesus. So this, this wandering that James has in mind can very much be the things that we confess, the things that we profess, the things that we believe, the doctrine. But it can also be moral. In fact, Jude has this in mind in Jude verse 4. There's no chapters in the book of Jude, just verses. All right? In Jude 4, he says this. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude says there are some who look at Jesus' grace, the grace that God showed us at the cross, and they go, that's awesome, man. Now we get to do whatever we want to do. We can do whatever we want, and God just will love us and receive us. We can live however we want. He said they take God's grace, he says, and they pervert it into sensuality. He says as a result, they're destined for condemnation. Because grace is never intended to be an excuse for sensuality and perversion and sin to lead us astray. But grace is always to be the motive for holiness and purity and to press forward in our walk with Christ. And so it can be either doctrinal or moral, but most often this wandering that James references in James chapter 5 is a combination because ultimately at, at the very root level, whenever our practice deviates and we swerve in the way that we're living and the choices that we're making, the decisions that we're coming to, it's ultimately because in those moments we're believing something down below that that's leading us to make those decisions. No matter what we say with our lips that we believe, in reality, when the rubber meets the road, so to speak, what we really believe comes out in how we live. And the Bible is always supposed to be a connection between truth and godliness. So if you really are confessing the truth and believing the truth about who God is and what He's done in Christ, then it should be producing a godliness in your life. And so whenever there is not that godliness and that growth in holiness and the development of the fruit of the Spirit, then ultimately there's something underneath that you're believing a lie that's leading you to act contrary to what you're saying that you believe. And James says there's going to be people in the church who just like Israel in the Old Testament where they turn away from God and they wander. They wander either doctrinally or they wander morally or both. James says. And James says, in any vital church where people are coming to faith in Jesus, you're going to have folks who wander. You're going to have folks who wander. Now, does this mean that true Christians will lose their salvation? Because this is what, he, what James goes on to say might give us that indication at first glance because he says that anyone who turns back someone who's wandering from the, their error right, will save their soul from death. They didn't say that they'll save their body from death, right? And say they're going to keep them from jumping off a cliff or making some kind of foolish decision and they're, they're, they're going to physically die. He says they're going to save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. 
So is James saying that, that there are folks who are truly Christians who are going to wander away from God and lose their salvation? I think based upon a reading of the rest of Scripture, you cannot come to that conclusion from this text. For instance, in John's Gospel, whenever Jesus says, I know my sheep, right? I know them, and no one will snatch them from my hand. No one. So it's not, he's not saying that you're going to lose your salvation. Charles Spurgeon, a great Bible teacher in the 1800s, used to use kind of an image. He talked about the Christian life being a journey toward heaven and with God. And you're like on a boat sailing, like on a cruise ship, okay? Not necessarily a cruise ship, but you're on a boat. In the 1800s, they didn't have cruise ships. They had big boats that would make sea voyages. And he said, Spurgeon said, you can get on the boat. And Christianity, when you become a Christian, you get on the boat, right? And you can't get off of the boat, you can't just fall off of the boat once you're on the boat because God is in His grace and love. He says, but what you can do on the boat is you can fall on that boat and you can break every joint in your body, every bone in your body and spend the entire trip in the infirmary. But you can't fall off the boat. You can fall on the boat and, and make a mess of your life, but you can't fall off the boat. So James isn't saying that true Christians can lose their salvation, but he is saying that true Christians at times will wander. They will wander away. And one of the ways you know there are true Christians is because ultimately God brings them back. Because no one's going to snatch them. And no one's going to take them from him. So James isn't saying that true Christians can lose their salvation, but what is he saying? He's saying it's possible that some folks who are part of a life of a local body, a local church, they're not, they never got on the boat to begin with. Maybe they grew up in church. Maybe they heard the sermons and sat through Sunday school classes and went to the camps. Maybe they even have a really emotional experience at some point, right, up in the mountains. All right, and so they have a really emotional experience. And so they, 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 you know, in that last night of camp when everybody's crying and singing, man, they come down and they cry and they sing. But they never got on the boat. And it's very possible that they could wander away. And if they wander away, here's the danger in them wandering away if they were never on the boat to begin with. He said they believe that what they're walking away from is the genuine article. When they've never known what it is to truly be born of God and truly come to life. And James says there are some who are part of local fellowships and local churches perhaps the church that he's writing to, and perhaps even our church, who never got on the boat to begin with, because it's possible to be outwardly connected and you're not inwardly converted. It's possible to show up every Sunday and come to church and sing the songs and even perhaps be involved in a life group and yet never having experienced conversion, never having experienced a heart change. Listen to what James says in verse 19. He says, If anyone among you wanders from the truth. He's not saying if anybody outside the church denies the truth that you're confessing, but if anyone among you who's been outwardly connected to the body of believers, if they wander away, if they wander from the truth doctrinally, if they wander from the truth morally, he says if they wander away, he's not saying those outside the church, but he's talking about those inside, those who are outwardly connected but not inwardly converted. It's a dangerous place to be. But how do you know if that's where you are? 
how do you know if you're outwardly connected and not inwardly converted? A couple of things that might be indicators of that for you. And the first one is this, is that all your obedience, everything that you're doing for God, quote unquote, everything that you're, uh, all your obedience is external rule keeping that's not birthed from a heart that is deeply in love with God and others. So there's no internal motivation driving you. It's all external rule keeping and box checking. If that's you, you might be outwardly connected but not inwardly converted. In addition, Jesus has always been the God of your forefathers, but he's never become your God, right? Maybe you were raised in church and your parents had you in services from the time that you were in the womb, man, right? You're, you're like showing up nine months before you actually even arrive on the scene. And you're there every Sunday in your childhood. And even maybe now as an adult, there is some sense of obligation to continue to stay in church because that's how your parents raised you. And so maybe God was always the God of your forefathers. And when you heard your parents or your grandparents talk about what, they had, what God had done in their lives, it was foreign to you. Yeah, I show up and I listen to sermons, or I show up and I go to life group, and we have some discussions, we bring meals to people, and we hang out, and we serve people in the community. But I've never truly experienced an inward conversion where their heart has been wrecked over their sin and has been lifted to love Jesus. Is he your God or is he the God of your forefathers? Another way you might notice this is if God, if Jesus has always just kind of been useful to you but never really beautiful to you. In other words, you come to church because, man, my marriage is kind of falling apart, and so I need to come, and I need to get some help with my marriage, right? So I come to church, and I get help with my marriage, and so he's useful to me in order to get help with my marriage, but he's not beautiful to me. So if my marriage falls apart, I came to church, I came to Jesus to get help in my marriage, and so my marriage falls apart, Jesus can't help me because he's not beautiful to you. He's not lovely to you. There's nothing about him that captures your affections. Or my finances are all out of whack. So I come to church, I do Dave Ramsey, right, religiously. I, I want to get my finances in order and I lose my job. Jesus isn't useful to me anymore. So I bail because he's not beautiful. So even through the loss of a job or the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child, you're not continuing to cling to him because he's not useful to you anymore. Or perhaps, perhaps you just find the gospel to be head-level stimulating but not heart-level captivating. So in other words, man, you go, man, the truths of the gospel, they're kind of like interesting to discuss and to debate and talk about and, and to think on, but it doesn't really do anything to stir my affections doesn't produce any kind of love in my heart for God, for what he's done, who he is. If those things describe you, there's a good possibility that you, you may have just be outwardly connected but never experienced inward conversion. And if you wander away from the truth, you find yourself to be in a dangerous position because you think that you have tasted all that there is to taste of Christianity. And so when someone comes to you and says, no, here's the beauty of the gospel, you're like, that wasn't useful for me. My parents told me about all that stuff. James says it's absolutely possible and it's a dangerous position to be in, to be outwardly connected but not inwardly converted. 
So how do you know if someone is in that situation? This is how you know if you're in that situation, but how do you know if somebody else is in that situation? And here's the reality. You don't. You can't. As one commentator said, he said, the only evidence we have of each other is what we profess with our lips and live in our lives. We are not privy to the secrets of another's heart, nor to the secret counsels of God. We dare not sit back from any declension in truth or life that becomes evident within the bounds of our local church. He says, you can't know whether or not somebody else that you're looking at is just outwardly connected but not inwardly converted. And so what do you do whenever they begin to wander away and they begin to profess things that aren't consistent with the truths that the Bible reveals? Or whenever their lives begin to be shaped in a certain way that they don't look like they're actually believing what the truth of the Scriptures teach? What do you do in those moments? You can't see into their heart to know what's going on there. So how do you respond? And James says, you got to move toward them. you got to seek them out. And in fact, that's what he calls us to do. He says whenever someone wanders, either doctrinally or morally, he says we should engage in a mission of reclamation and rescue to recover them. Because you don't know the condition of their heart. And you don't know if they are inwardly converted and they're just backsliding and God's going to bring them back or if they're just outwardly connected. And when they walk away, they think they've tasted everything that Christianity has to offer. And they're going to find themselves in, an, in a, an infinitely hard position in their hearts. And so you move towards them in this mission of reclamation. In fact, in verses 19 to 20, James, is used, James uses the language of bringing them back, right? Bringing them back. Pulling them back in. Seeking them out. In fact, it's an active verb in the Greek text. When he says bring them back, in the Greek language, when you look underneath our English, it's an active verb. And here's what that means. is You're not just sitting back waiting for somebody else to act. But to bring them back is to step into that relationship and to seek them out and to pursue them. I think of the image of a shepherd at this point. You know, this Bible calls us all sheep, right? Even us pastors are sheep. (laughs) We're following a chief shepherd, the only senior shepherd that there is. But God's also delegated authority within the life of the local church to under-shepherds to seek people out. And so whenever you read this text, you might be thinking, right, This is the job of all the pastors and all the elders. And I just want you to know, this is something that we take seriously as pastors and elders. And we pray for those. We pray for those who we feel it would appear to all intents and purposes by the indications of their life that they're wandering. We pray for them and we seek them out. We seek to have conversations with them. Sometimes they don't respond to us. And that puts us in a very difficult position. Because we care for them and love them, but we're actively engaging and seeking them. But notice what James says. Back up in verses uh, 13 through uh, 18, he talks about the elders of the church. If any of you are sick, call the elders, have them come pray for them. But James doesn't come down in verses 19 and 20 to say, if anyone wanders, call the elders and tell them to go seek them out. What does he say? What does he say? If anyone wanders and someone brings them back. Anyone brings them back. James doesn't just lay all of this at the feet of the elders and the pastors and the under-shepherds in Jesus' church, but he says all of us are responsible for this mission and ministry of reclamation, of seeking people out. 
So whether you're an elder in this church or you're a life group leader in this church or you're a member of this church, then each of us has a responsibility whenever we see someone wandering to pick up the phone, to try and schedule lunch, to try and go to coffee, potentially to show up at their home. Say, we love you. We're concerned for you. And listen, this doesn't necessarily mean that if they're leaving our church to go to another church, okay? Because they might not like our church. But what it means, if they leave this church and they never plug in somewhere else and they never get connected somewhere else, that is an indication of something that's going on deeper in the heart. Because even though they may not come to this particular local body any longer, God's not going to tell them to stay home on Sunday mornings even if he didn't send them here. And you say, you need to be connected and involved. So even if they're leaving our local church to go to another, it doesn't mean you have to chase them down and say, no, you've got to come back here. But if they're leaving this local church and they're not connecting somewhere else, then we have an obligation. An obligation as one who cares for our brother and sister to seek them out. Say, what's going on, man? What's going on in here? James says, this isn't just laid at the feet of the elders and pastors, but it's laid at the feet of every member, every Christian. So when do we do this? Right? Do we, every little sin that we see someone commit, or every little false statement that we see someone utter, do we go chase them down and say, you're wandering, right? Your heart is far from God. When you, you need to come back. I'm praying for your repentance. Every little thing that somebody does. I don't think that's what James is saying. Listen to what he says in verse 20. He says, he uses the language of their way, and the Greek of verse 20 literally reads this, from the error of his way. And the way, the, the language of the way in Scripture indicates a pattern or a lifestyle, the way someone walks, how they conduct themselves. There's a pattern of their life. There's a pattern of their beliefs. There's a pattern of their practice. So when you begin to see patterns that emerge in people's lives, the way in which they're living, James says, you've got to seek them out. You don't necessarily correct every little false statement that they make or every little sin that you see them commit. You don't go blow them up over that. But when you begin to see patterns emerging in their character, patterns emerging in their behavior, patterns emerging in their conversations, patterns emerging in what they're believing, perhaps their influences, you go out of concern and out of love. James has to bring them back when you see those kind of patterns emerging. So how do you do this? I think Matthew 18 gives us a great outline for how to do something like this. In that text, Jesus says, listen, there's, the way you go to people is, first of all, you go to them privately. Right, so you don't, you don't schedule an intervention with 17 people and show up at their house. That's not the first step. You go to them privately. You pray fervently before you go to them as well. That God would give you discernment. That he would give you clarity. But you go to them privately. You sit down and you have a conversation and say, I'm concerned. This is what I see. And I'm concerned about this pattern that I've seen emerging in your life. And you speak to the pattern. Not just the isolated instance where they may have hurt your feelings. But you speak to the pattern that you see emerging in their character or in their confession. 
And if they don't respond to that, then you take someone with you, as Jesus says. And you go, someone else who loves and cares for them is concerned for them. And you say, let us speak to the pattern again. And if they still don't respond, then you take it to the church. And then in our context, that would be coming to the pastors and elders. And let us go and, and seek them out and seek to address the pattern of their behavior, or their convictions, or their character. And so you go to them privately, and then you go to them, them uh, with, with someone else, and then you go to them publicly in the life of the church. But even as you address the pattern, you're making offers to help. How can I help you? How can we direct you? How can we support you? I see what's going on, or I think I see what's going on, but what is going on? Let me, let me get under the surface of the heart what's driving this behavior that we're seeing. How can we help you? As opposed to saying, you're wrong. You need to turn, turn around. You need to come back, right? Because I need to bring you back because that's what God told me to do. No, how can I help you and walk alongside of you in the midst of this? And we're all responsible for it. Now, some of us are thinking right now, right? Really? This is, this is, this is what we got to do? Really? If we're going to be a vital church, this is what we got to do? We got we to go after sheep that are wandering from the fold? Yes. And some of you may be thinking, who am I to go after this dude? Or who am I to go after her? And to try and bring them back on this mission of reclamation and recovery. Who am I? Right? Didn't Jesus say, if you got a log in your eye, right, how can you help somebody else take a speck out of theirs? Man, I see my life. I'm all jacked up at all kinds of places people don't even know about. How do I go to them? But Jesus doesn't say, if you've got a log in your eye, you can't help your brother take the speck out of his. What he says is, how can you who have a log in your eye help a brother take a speck out of his? First take the log out of your own eye, then go help your brother take the stick out of his. First, you come before God in repentance. You come before God in humility. You come before God in confession. And then you go to your brother or you go to your sister. Will you be misunderstood? Probably. <laughs> Will people criticize you? More than likely. Will people accuse you of being judgmental? Absolutely. Does it mean that we don't do this? No. No, we have to if we're going to be a vital church where disciples are being produced and reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. So what's going to give you the courage then to go after a brother or sister who is wandering? Because you're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be criticized. You're going to be accused of being judgmental. You're going to be rejected. So what's going to give you the courage to step into that as opposed to pulling away from it? Here's the only thing that will give you courage is that there is someone who came after you to bring you back. There's someone who came after me to bring me back. Jesus did not sit up in heaven and go, man, I hope they can figure out their way for themselves. What does he do? He comes down to where we are, and he comes after us to seek and to save that which was lost. All of those wanderers, he comes after us. He came after you, and if he didn't come after you, he's coming after you this morning. He's after your heart. 
And the only thing that's going to give you the courage to go and pursue those who are wandering is to see there's someone who pursued you in your wandering as well. He came to seek and to save. He sought you when you were far from him. When you were dead in sin, he came after you. As the old Lutheran hymn, the church's one foundation says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Jesus came after you. He came from heaven and sought you. And he's saying to you and I, go after them. Because when you do, he says, you may cover over a multitude of sins and save their soul from death. And he's not saying that you're going to give your life for them in the way that Jesus did. What he's saying is you're going to bring them back to the one who gave his life for them to cover a multitude of sins. In the same way that if you knew you had a massive debt that was going to come due to, you know, the IRS was just getting all their I's dotted and their T's crossed before they came after you for all those back taxes that you owe to them, right? And there was someone who stepped in and they said, here's a check, a blank check for whatever it's going to cost you. What would you say? They covered you, Right? They covered you. They paid your debt. And Jesus says, when you chase down wanderers, James says, when you chase down wanderers who are wandering doctrinally or morally, what you're doing is you're bringing them back to the one who has written the check to cover every cent that they owe to God, to cover a multitude of sins. And you're bringing them back to him, saying, love him, serve him. Don't you see what he's done for you? Don't wander in the desert. Don't walk away from the God who came from heaven to seek you. And brother, I want more for you than for you to fall on the ship and break every bone in your body and to spend your entire trip in the infirmary. I want more for you. And that's why I'm coming. That's why I'm seeking you out. Listen, to do nothing is to do something. James calls us to this mission of reclamation. And to do nothing is to do something, is to participate in their wandering. And my hope would be that God would raise up a church that's filled with humble and hopeful people who do not participate in the wandering of others, but go after them with hearts that are filled with compassion and courage because of what Christ has done and coming after you. What James says is so important to us as a church right now. If we're going to have a vital presence and make disciples in Royce City, Texas for years to come. Let's pray together. Father, today we thank you for your grace, for your compassion, for the fact that you did not let us wander but you came after us. You saved our soul from death. You covered a multitude of sins through the sending of your son. And Father, I pray that his sacrifice would indeed, even as we sang earlier, would make us brave, would give us courage, would fill us with compassion and hearts that beat with love. 
to go after those who were either outwardly connected but not inwardly converted and so they think they've walked away from the genuine article of what Christianity is. And God, I pray that you would give grace to see some come back. And Father, I pray you would give us those same hearts of love and compassion to chase after on this mission of reclamation those who have fallen on the ship and they've broken bones and they're in the infirmary right now. God, help us not to write them off, but to lovingly seek after them. When we see patterns arising in their lives, and Father, I pray that our first inclination would not be, would not be to call the pastor or call the elders, but would be to humbly and lovingly go after them ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.